This is an amazing day, the day Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and um, the day, in a sense, uh, the church was born. The big deal of this is that in raising Jesus from the dead, God proved that he had power over both sin and death. You know, in, in the crucifixion, Jesus took upon him the sin of the world, but in, it was in the resurrection that we were justified. And we see that in Romans 4.25. In the NRV, it says, He was delivered over to death for sins and was raised to life for our justification. In the Passion Translation, it's a new translation. I was just looking at it there, and this is what it says. Jesus was handed over to be crucified for the forgiveness of sins and was raised back to life to prove that he had made us right with God. In 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verse 13 to 15, Paul speaks about the resurrection, and he uses the negative to highlight the positive. So we're going to go through this. It's not sort of in order, but we're going to go through most of this uh, chapter. It says here in verse 13, Paul speaking to the church in Corinth, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is our faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses of God. These are strong words. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But if he did not raise him, then in fact the dead are not raised. What Paul is stating here to this church with regards to the resurrection is that if if the, the resurrection did not happen, then all the apostles are either liars, completely deluded, or totally lost, and including himself in that. And if the resurrection didn't happen, then Jesus has no power over life and death, and our faith is in vain. It would be a hopeless situation if that was right. As I said, Paul is stating the negative to prove the positive. But in fact, Paul's encounter with Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus in AD 36 was actually proof of the resurrection. In this one encounter, Saul of Tarsus, the persecutor of the church, was radically transformed into Paul the Apostle, thereby becoming Christianity's most powerful witness. He's looking back at this time as he's reading this, I'm sure. He's remembered on, remembering on that day, uh, on the road to Damascus, where Jesus Christ met him, the risen Savior. Paul was radically transformed. He became Christianity's most powerful witness and wrote 13 of the 27 books in the New Testament, many from prison. Paul endured hardship. He endured five floggings, three beatings, three shipwrecks, stonings, poverty, and much ridicule. And finally, he was beheaded, beheaded by Nero in AD 68, 32 years after his conversion, because he would not deny his faith. Paul understood who he worshipped. And even at the point of death, all he had to do before Nero is deny Jesus Christ. And he would not do that. And even today, we know that people have been martyred for their faith, for Christianity, because of the belief 
in the resurrected Christ. In, second, in 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul writes of his hardships in the context of eternity. Therefore, we do not lose heart. And he says this, For our light and momentary afflictions are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. What Paul is saying here, in the context of those beatings, those floggings, in the context of eternity, he said, my salvation far outweighs all of that. And Jesus said in this world, he said to his disciples in the upper room, in John, he said, in this world, you will have trouble, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And getting back to uh, 2 Corinthians, it says here, For if the dead have not been raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and all you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people to be most pitied. But Christ is has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. On the road to Damascus, as I said, he saw the risen Christ, and his life was radically transformed. And church history tells us that of the 12 apostles, 10 were persecuted and died for their faith. So the question I want to ask you, this is a very simple message. I want us to worship some more. The question I want to ask you is this. Why would the apostles die for a lie? Why would Paul do that? Why would so many people do that? It's a question that we should ask ourselves. Would you die for a lie? Or would we place our hands in Jesus Christ? Serving with all our hearts and it's necessary, pay the ultimate price for our faith. You see, the fact that they died and were persecuted and suffered is because they knew that Jesus had risen from the dead. There's no other reason. If it was a lie, the first time they were going to be stoned or burnt to death or put on a cross, I'm sure if it was a lie, the first thing, hey, 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 I'm sorry, I made this up. And they would be pushed to the point of death to do that. But they could not because they knew and saw Jesus Christ as the risen Lord and Savior. You see, over a period of 40 days after the crucifixion, they had seen him. They had talked to him. They had touched him. They ate with him, and finally, they saw him ascend into heaven. Jesus is alive, church. We serve a risen Savior. The fact that this community of 12 apostles believed this so much that in the the 10 uh, messages that they preached in the book of Acts, eight of them, they used proof of the resurrection as Jesus Christ's. Um, being the Lord and Savior. And we see this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1 to 11. Paul now writing at the beginning of this chapter, we've looked at the end of it. 
he says this. He says, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. Church, by this gospel, Jesus, the way and the truth and the life. In John 14, 6, in the upper room, Jesus drew a line in the sand. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no man can come to the Father except through me. He drew a line in the sand. And many will say that Christianity is exclusive, but that's absolutely not true. And I've used this example before. He is the door. He is the door into heaven. He is the way to heaven. He is the way to uh, uh, eternal life, but only through him. But whomsoever would believe can be saved. It's the gospel for everybody. It's the gospel for everybody. God gave man um, free will because free will is the, the ultimate act of love. He gave us a choice to serve him, to love him, to give our lives to him or not. See, if there was no free will, we would call that abuse. You are in a relationship with somebody that forces you to be in, in that relationship against your will. That is abuse. Who wants to be in a relationship like that? We don't. So God gives us a choice. We can choose him or not to choose him. But he died for all, and the only way to heaven is by c- confessing with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And if you do that, the word of God says, you will be saved. You see, he says, by this gospel you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as first importance. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. And after that he appeared to more than 500 in those 40 days at one stage. He, he must maybe on the, uh, um, maybe in Galilee, somewhere around Jerusalem, wherever he was at the time. A crowd of 500 people gathered and he revealed himself to them. And he says this. At the same time, most of whom were still living. Another amazing proof that Jesus was alive because he was writing this letter to a church in Corinth, and maybe some of them had been part of that 500. And if they had not seen him, surely they would have refuted this letter. Most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared also to me also as one abnormally born. For I am the least of all the apostles and do not even do deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. Lord, in, in Jesus Christ saving Paul, he proved the fact that no one, no sin is too big for him to forgive. In Acts 8, he stood there with Stephen's 
cloak and his sandals at his feet. And the word of God says he gave approval to his death. The first martyr. He left there. In Acts 9, he says, I'm going to go to Damascus, and I'm going to wipe out the sect there too. And on the way, Jesus met him. And he's looking back on that, and he's understanding the love, mercy, and grace. I don't care what you've done. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what situation you're in. God sent his son Jesus, who paid the price for your sin, past present and future. And when you accept him into your life, he transforms you and makes you a brand new creation. We'd love to chat to you more about that or if you have friends about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a free gift of salvation, but it is a gift. And we can choose to receive it or not. And I believe God has brought us to here because I believe some may have been doubting the faith and I believe God wants to confirm it through his word. I believe maybe some have just come for the first time and never heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to tell you that God loves you. He loves you unconditionally, and He wants you to be part of His family through your free will, to choose Him or not. And there may be some that are, are, have gone a bit cold in their faith. And one of the scriptures, you'll hear me mention this often because it means so much to me, is what David writes, after sinning badly with Bathsheba in Isaiah 51, he says, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Lord, remind me. Remind me what you did for me on the cross. Lord, remind me why you took me from the miry clay. You put my feet upon the rock. Remind me how you set me free. Remind me how you put into a loving community. Remind me, Lord, of those. Restore my joy. Restore my joy, Lord God. Because when we're joyful and happy, it bursts out of us. And see, God doesn't want us to be secret agents for Him. God doesn't want us to be a light under a bed, sort of shining, or a light in a gymnasium. God wants the people out there to know through us that He loves them, that He died for them. He came to set them free, and He paid the ultimate price. There's no gift that God could have given greater than His only Son. I've often thought of this, and God, the creator of the universe, could have created another being, an angel, and said, will you do it? He could have done many things. He could have wiped out the earth and started again. And yet He gave His only begotten Son. And as a father and a grandfather... I, even on this weekend, especially on Good Friday, I can't imagine, Father God, what it must have been like to look down through all eternity and see His Son being crucified by His creation. I don't know which was harder. I don't know whether it's easier for, or it's harder for God not to step in, or was it harder for Jesus Christ? I don't know. I think it was extremely difficult. We know that Jesus said, if you, if you can, Father, take this cup from me. But he said, however, not my will, thy will be done. And when he died, he uttered these words before he died. Father, forgive them, 
for they know not what they do. And with that, he sealed the fate of all of us for all eternity. The fate to choose him or to reject him. That's the choice. And today I feel God wants to remind us not only of our salvation, that joy we had. I had a friend um, in, in South Africa in our church. He became a very good friend. His wife would come for about two years. Uh, his name was John. And um, he, she got saved. Uh, and he was a really, a, a very strong drinker. He wasn't saved. And for two years, for two years, he would, she would come to church and he would ridicule her. He had, he had come to the church um, if she was late and, and even publicly in the car park, uh, give her a hard time. And we were praying and she was praying and for, for years for him. And I must say, I think many of us sort of ran out of faith for him, <laughs> but she certainly didn't. And we're in a prayer meeting uh, of all places in a double garage in South Africa with a number of friends. Uh, I was leading the prayer meeting. And his wife was there, and um, um, we were praying, and he was outside, the, it was hot, so the door was up, and he was sitting there, and he was flashing his lights, because he wanted her to come out of there. And, um, and so we carried on praying, and his wife carried on praying. All of a sudden, he opened the door and slammed it and came running. I thought, oh, geez, he's going to take one of us out. He came, he pushed people aside, he came to me, grabbed my feet, and started shouting, save me, save me, save me, save me. He had a revelation of the Christ in the car while we were praying, got radically saved. But I'm telling you what, from being this uh, hedonistic alcoholic to one of the greatest witnesses I ever knew, because he knew what he had been forgiven from. And I'd hang with him and discipled him a bit. And uh, it was very difficult to go anywhere with him because if you're at the gas bar and there they fill your tank for you, he would get out the car and start witnessing to the attendant and he'd start praying for him and telling him his story and you stuck at the gas bar and then we'd go to the, then we'd go to the store and the person at the counter would be a long line, he'd be telling them about Jesus, what he did. He could not stop. We didn't want to so, stop him. And this, um, I think it was Wesley that said, you know, what is the secret of your ministry? And many young men that got saved through his ministry and were spreading the gospel. And he said, I set them on fire and I watched them burn. And that's what God wants us to be, light, salt, and light. You see, people get what we have, not what we say we have. We need to be full of joy. And gratitude like Paul. We need, to, we need to fix our eyes on Jesus. He loves us. He died for us. And share the gospel, as Francis as Assisi said, of Assisi said, go into all the world and preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. You see, our lifestyle as a church, we can turn the city upside down. The life-giving churches, we're not the only one. Our lifestyle speaks more than our words. It's amazing that Jesus, he says, when I come back, I'm going to commend my sheep for going and giving a cup of water in my name, a visit to a hospital, a cloak, 
We want to know how we can do it. We do it through love. You see, what we do through our deeds, because it's only the Holy Spirit that can bring conviction, righteousness, and, and judgment. It says in, in, Luke, in John, when the Holy Spirit comes, the, the, the Holy Spirit will come and convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. So we're not to convict people. That is not our job. We cannot even save people. If you think you can, could you even save yourself? Anybody save themselves? No. But through our lifestyle, it softens people's hearts. Or it hardens people's hearts. And we represent Jesus Christ as ambassadors. And often, often, as a pastor, I try not to let people know I'm a pastor for, uh, all, uh, right away because it can close many doors. Hang with guys. Some of their language is really colorful and all that. And then ask him what he does. And he asks me and I tell him and all of a sudden they start confessing or, and so on. <laughs> it's quite funny. I love it. But when you get down to it, when I press in, it's actually not Jesus that they are angry with. It's the church. Many Christians. It's the church. The church of the living God, Jesus Christ, the bride of Christ. And I'm praying that we will be a people that represent Him well, that there's joy in our lives. We understand what Jesus Christ did for us. For I'm the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace to me is not without effect. Now I worked even harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. Whether then it is, uh, it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believe. And finally, this is what he was told Nero, the same words. Something like this when he was asked to deny the gospel and beheaded for his faith. See, Paul writes in Colossians 2, 13 to 15, once again, when I write, write, read Paul's writings or Peter or John, I often read them in the context of looking back on their own lives. Like when Peter says in 1 Peter 5, be shepherd of God's flock. He would have been there when Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. I can imagine Paul constantly, this apostle of grace, remembering constantly, not with condemnation, but with gratitude, his past, and that he had been set free by the power of the blood of Jesus. And so this could be him writing about himself, and it could be us writing about us. It says, when you were dead in your sins and in, your, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all your sins past, present, and future. When we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9 says, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
because our righteousness is in Him. You see, we are not saved on the basis of what we've done, but on the basis of what Jesus did for us, the perfect sacrifice. And we cannot add to it, and we shouldn't take away from it. It's Christ alone, in Christ alone. Amen? Amen. Thank you. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them by triumphing over them on the cross. Jesus is alive. Jesus is with us. Jesus loves you. He saved you, set you free. And if you've got some business to do with him, I just pray that you do it. He knows about it anyway. You know, it's like... uh, a kid having something in your pocket, uh, a grandkid of mine, I've got a friend, they stick something in their pocket and I, see, and I see them put it in their hand, a cookie or something. And I say, hey, what's in your pocket? Nothing. <laughs> Are you sure? Nothing. I saw you. Oh, okay. Out it comes. God knows. God knows. But he's already paid for it. Jesus doesn't have to die more than once. He took the sin of the world. He wants a church that is radically in love with him, radically in love with each other, and radically in love with the world. It's interesting when Jesus saw the harvest, and we say in this city there's 80 or 90,000 unchurched people. But when he saw the harvest, he said the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. He didn't say pray for the harvest. He said pray for workers. Workers that would go in his name, share a cup of water, spend some time, help a single mom, visit the elderly. There's a million things. We can't ever get up to God and say, listen, I didn't know what to do. Say, well, walk out your gate and go for a walk, and you'll find something what to do for me. And as we do that, eventually... People will come say, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? I don't deserve that. And then you tell them your story. Don't condemn them. Just tell them, man, I was lost. Jesus saved me. He set me free. And he's alive and well and living in heaven. See, Jesus is alive. And in closing... This question, I think we've answered it a bit, but why did God the Father allow mankind to kill his son? The answer is John three sixteen and 17. For God so loved the world. Every single person, it's not the globe, not the not the oceans, yeah, he created that for our good pleasure, but he loves the world. He loves you. He loves every person. You know, somebody could be in ISIS, martyr somebody, and through that, get a revelation of the Christ and be saved themselves. That's what happened to Paul. God loves everybody, but he hates so much, sin so much. Because it destroys us, it kills us, it robs from us, and it separates us from him. So he sent his son, and he gave 
His one and only Son, that whoever believeth in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Church, this amazing grace, how sweet the sound. If I could have the worship team come forward. So I'm asking you, I know it's a fantastic time with family, and today is actually a celebration. The celebration is we don't serve God in vain. He's alive. And I'm praying for us as a community as we move in. Uh, we prayed there the other night. It's, it's huge. We'll be able to put three or four times this amount of people in there. And we don't want people in that building just to fill a building so that we feel good about ourselves. We want to see people empowered by God and by the Holy Spirit to go and be salt and light, to go and be salt and light, to be equipped for works of service. We want to see people in the city know that we exist, not because we've got a website, but because we are people who love people. This city is in dire need. This government of the city is in dire need. You know, we can judge them or we can pray for them. And God says, pray for those in authority. I don't know why they're there. Maybe we get what we deserve. I don't know. But we do need God to intervene. Somebody came, when we came to Nanaimo to Plancha, we were here about six months uh, or so, and a pastor came. He's He's no longer in the city, an old pastor, and he said, listen, why, why are you in Nanaimo? So I said, well, we felt God call us here. He says, get out of here. This is a crazy place. This is in the mid-90s. A lot of stuff goes down here and pastors and all of that. It was a bit weird, you know, <laughs> but he really was concerned about us. And, um, and so, and, but God called us to stay. God called us not because we're special or anything, from across the world, because He loves the city. He's called you here, whether it's one week, two weeks, ten years, or your life, to the central island, to this island, because He loves this island. He loves people, and people need to know that. And we can do that. We can't do that if we have nothing inside of us. If we're not full of joy and gratitude, we can't give it away. So let's be a people they love each other, love God. And I'm so thankful that we go and turn the no world upside down. A prophetic guy came to this church a few years ago, first time. A uh, guy, Sammy Robinson, amazing guy. And he got up in the front of the church. He said, you are saying, why Nanaimo? But God is saying, why not? Why not Nanaimo, why not? Why can we not change this world with our love and good deeds we, when we serve people through our businesses or uh, through restaurants, wherever we work? Why can we not be praying? Why can we not be reaching out? Why can we not open our eyes to see what God sees? And if you don't know what to do, buy them a Tim Hortons coffee. That's about the equivalent of a cup of water. A cup of water here with all the rain may not be as special. But a coffee, something like that. Love on them. Share your heart with them. Because God loves them 
And we want to see this city transformed. Amen. Amen. Let's, let's stand and worship the Lord. Thank you, Jesus.